Mormon Stories podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a contribution to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. For all this and more, please check out mormonstories.org. And thank you for listening. Welcome to part two of our multi-part interview with Dr. Richard Bushman, author of Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. I want to begin with a bit of a disclaimer. Some of you will notice that the audio quality on these two interviews have not quite been up to par, and I wanted to briefly explain why. Brother Bushman was a real gem to conduct this interview while fighting a cold, but because his voice was a bit weakened, I had to turn his volume up very high to make sure his points were heard. As a result, you will hear a continual buzz throughout the interview, although it's somewhat slight, and some heavy static for the first two minutes or so of the interview. Please forgive the annoyance, but I felt that his points were so important that I could not bear to edit them out. After the first two minutes or so, it becomes much more bearable. Now to the content. In this episode, we tackle four main topics. First, Brother Bushman provides a high-level review of the major Joseph Smith biographies that preceded Roughstone Rolling including Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History. Next, Brother Bushman discusses the art of writing history and the challenges involved in trying to arrive at, quote, the facts and, quote, the truth for both historians and readers of history. Finally, we discuss in depth the first two of our top 10 tough Joseph Smith issues, the first being the multiple accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision story, and second, Joseph Smith's involvement in folk magic and treasure digging. Joseph Smith's story and your story, today on Mormon Stories. Well, there are interesting and valuable biographies in their own way starting with George Buchanan, who wrote a very idealized picture of Joseph Smith in the 19th century. But one of our eminent intellectuals of that period, and I didn't consult it uh, for information, but uh, I think it sort of stands in the historic historiographical sequence. John Henry Evans' biography uh, was the book that more than any other turned uh, Leonard Arrington towards church history because Evans, he did it all with with uh, writing style, with his prose. He was just as laudatory as Cannon, but he wrote it in kind of a down-to-earth journalistic language that made it sound like uh, Joseph is a real guy who happened to have a lot of virtues and talents. And so it was an appealing book. I, Woodbridge Riley, at the turn of the century, wrote his psychological portrait of Joseph Smith, this is Yale PhD, and it really laid out the arguments, uh, the anti-Masonry, anti-Catholicism arguments that Fawn Brody picked up on later. It was marred by its <coughs> unrelenting, sarcastic tone. He was just scornful from first word to last, but he actually had a lot to say. 
and so it has to go on the list. And then, of course, Von Brody, uh, which I'm now beginning to see uh, could be thought of as a positive work. Mormons couldn't stand it, of course. Uh, but in terms of non-Mormon books written uh, by about Joseph Smith, it was a relatively sympathetic portrait. I still have friends who say they think it's a very sympathetic portrait of Joseph Smith. Uh, and, of course, Mormons are mystified by how anyone could, could say that. I see what uh, you're saying. I, I, I left No Man Knows My History thinking that he was brilliant, that he was a genius, and a good-hearted man. Yeah. Well, uh, th- that's exactly what I, I wanted to say. Um, the final book I'd put on the list would be uh, Donna Hill, which I thought was a uh, a lot of historical <laughs> substance there, because Marvin Hill, her brother, was helping her, and a, a nicely written piece, but not much on his Joseph's thought. And through it all, that was what I felt was missing, was his religious life and his theological mind. And so finally I decided that's why I needed to uh, write a book that would fill out that side of his his character. So was you're going to... You're a humble man, so you're not going to grasp this, but were you hoping to write the definitive biography, or is that just a silly word altogether? It's a silly word. Uh, no one can ever define Joseph Smith uh, permanently. Uh, I was very conscious that this is just one view of Joseph. And someone can go through and tell another story entirely. So, but I wanted it to be a view that would explain why so many really substantive people joined the church and continue to believe in Joseph Smith. The great dilemma in writing about Joseph Smith is that if you start with the gold plates and end with polygamy, he really comes across as a scalawag and a fraud. But then you got the problem: why do so many people believe in him? And you know, substantive sensible people like Brigham Young and Wilfred Woodruff and uh, then why do they still believe today so I I wanted to be able to tell the story that would deal with all the facts but would write it in empathetically so that you could see the world from Joseph Smith and the Mormons point of view but that's just one angle there are lots of other ways of telling that story so this uh presents a bit of an interesting dilemma because I agree just focusing on the negative not only doesn't tell the full story but it also comes across as as being negative but as I as I talked to you beforehand about how we might approach this podcast uh, you know I set it up from my own experience and I'll just recount that because it sort of sets up how we're going to approach you know this podcast but basically you know, I grew up with a whitewashed view of Joseph Smith, and I, I have to admit, I didn't have parents who could school me in the nuances of um, of history and of perspective and of depth. Uh, they're, they're wonderful, smart people, but we just didn't have those types of conversations growing up, really, about the church or church history. So, I I was I, I had to rely not on what I read because I didn't read much. So I relied on what my seminary teacher taught me and what my Sunday school teachers taught me. And I happened to have a seminary teacher who grew up in Salt Lake and was a Bruce R. McConkie slash Joseph Fielding Smith Mormon, if there ever was one. 
And so I didn't have any subtle, nuanced um, perceptions of Joseph Smith at all. And I, I just have to be honest. I think that it, it, people who are growing up in the church today who rely on the church education system and general conference talks and ensign articles uh, or even New Era friend articles about Joseph Smith as their primary forms of input um, get the same sort of perspective that I did, which is here's this wonderful boy who was courageous and didn't drink alcohol when there was surgery happening to him, and he cared about God at a young age and prayed and, and had this miracle, and then for the rest of his life built this church and was always being thrown in jail for his for his you know spiritual views and he was always being persecuted for his spiritual you know strength and wisdom to the point where he was ultimately mar- martyred you know that's that's the view i have of joseph smith and of course it's a silly infantile view but you know that's i i got to age at least 25 with that view um somehow while still you know getting almost a 4.0 BYU so i don't think i was a dummy but you know what you know th- there are just so many thousands and thousands of people today every day on the internet who grew up with a view like that and then they're confronted with uh Fon Brody or you know exmormon.org or some website and it just blows them apart cuz cuz they can't deal with it and so while i you and i discussed with time limiting uh, whether we should sort of try and do a balanced podcast where we talk about the good and bad or whether time would be best served by just attacking the tough issues. Uh, we decided that we were just going to tackle the head, the tough issues head on. Um, uh, and so if, if there's time and, and we end up wanting to, we can come back at the end and do some of the more inspirational, uplifting stuff. But I'm just going to ask my listeners to bear with us as we try and, and optimize this podcast for a certain audience, which is those who are shocked and disturbed by a lot of what they have read, either through Grant Palmer or Michael Quinn or Fon Brody or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the context that I was hoping to have this conversation around. And so I yeah. picked... Oh, did you want to throw something in before I launch? Well, it? I would just say that I concur in your judgment that this is a major problem. I run into this all the time. And the trouble is you're not just shocked by the new facts you learned but you begin to question the whole teaching structure. You wonder why you were so deceived, and so it casts a shadow back on your teachers and everyone who uh, runs the church. So somehow or other, we've got to give uh, people growing up the whole story, or they're going to be in a precarious position, because uh, who knows when they'll go out on the Internet sometime and get hit with all this stuff. So you, you do have people coming to you a lot? A lot. How does that happen? Well, they just write me and tell me a story like you. You know, they've read the book, and um, it's a problem for them. <clears throat> they feel relieved. They feel like the book helps them out a little bit. Right, okay. Yeah. So with that, I've picked 10 or ten or 11 issues just to tackle. And um, what, what I'm going to do is try and set up for you what the traditional perceptions are, have you validate where the facts, uh, you know, add the facts that, that tell the full story or the full story that we can tell um, so that we really know instead of what the stereotyped, you know, whitewashed view is, what the facts or the historical facts seem to demonstrate. And then, then we'll have a discussion on, uh, you know, you 
helping us understand how you might put these issues in historical context, how you might put them in spiritual context, um, and if there's any debunking that needs to happen where there's a typical anti-Mormon claim or position and it's just flat out incorrect. Maybe you can inform us of that as well. Is that, is that fair? Well, let me begin by talking about the facts. Yes, please. We sometimes think like, you know, these are little nuggets like marble. They're just there, irreducible. But, um, you know, in any given letter, there are a million facts. And facts only become significant when they are turned into evidence. And they become evidence when there is a perspective or a theory or an idea that makes those facts relevant. Then they become evidence. And the reason I stress that is that what we think are, are just compelling facts, they just demand, also have underlying them a perspective on Joseph Smith that ties those facts together into some scheme. And until we recognize that whoever is telling us these facts is selectively choosing out of the millions and millions and millions of little facts the ones that he or she wants to tell his particular story. So it isn't just a matter of controverting the facts. It's identifying the story that's being told and asking, is there another story that can contain those facts that ends up being a different picture? Right. Yeah, and there's the whole discussion about history being subjective and people having agendas and never having the complete set of facts to then you know base your conclusions upon. Yeah, and you can't just dismiss that and say, oh, well, that's what people try to do to escape. That is the reality. That is the reality that historians work with every day of their lives. We all know we're molding our stories to portray the world or the past in the way we want to do it. And so, in a way, what you choose as your facts and what you choose to emphasize and the sequence you put them in is a reflection of you. You can't just say, it's the facts compel me to think some way. You are making a choice about how you want to, to view the world. And I'm just sorry, but that is, we have to begin with that uh, that realization. Yes, and, and thank you for that. And do you have, as a teacher of history, do you have an anecdote, and this is putting you on the spot, <coughs> do you have an anecdote that illustrates this concept um, in, in terms of how, in a, a way that something may have been written and then it got rewritten, or a way something was told, that sort of illustrates how precarious history, by its nature, can can be. Well, I wrote an essay years ago called "Faithful History," where I told a couple of anecdotes. One was about the way the Constitution is interpreted, how it was turned from a noble document of high political ideals into an expression of the base pecuniary interests of the framers, namely wanting a government that could protect their investments in the national debt. And it, Charles Beard just flipped the whole country with his book on the economic origins of the Constitution because he sort of brought out this, this stuff. It didn't last. Someone 
qualified this and a different picture emerged, but he just turned this over that way. But the story I told to sort of make it more simple was if you tell the story <coughs> of a woman dying, and then you say she died um, after her her lover had gone to war and had been killed. And then you say, then she died. You say, oh, the poor woman, she died of a broken heart. And then you add in the fact that she also smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. Then suddenly, everything takes a different look. So you you have to be ready for the whole world to be turned upside down when a new sequence of facts is thrown into the picture. So just the very s the selection and sequence of facts. <coughs> and the, the audio was a little bit low, so I'm just going to repeat that. So you say a woman died, right? That, a, a, woman, a woman dies, and then you say, well, why did she die? And then you say, her husband was killed in the war. Oh, she died of a broken heart. Then you add in the fact that she was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. You get a different view of it entirely. Right. And okay. I think that... Um, you know, you can tell a hundred stories of that sort. The one I often tell is one if in one of these reality shows you allowed a television camera man to come in and film you day and night. And at a certain point, they went through and they pulled out all the points where the mother in the family was scolding her baby, her child, maybe spanking it or getting angry at it. And over, you know, six months, there might be 10 or 15 of them. And you said, this is how this woman treats her child. You say, my God, she's abusive, an abusive mother. But there's no picture of her sitting on the couch with the baby pulled up against her, snuggled into under her arm, reading a book. No kissing the baby as it goes to bed. And all of a sudden, you know, you've turned probably a pretty good mother into a, a, a horrible tyrant. Right. And so someone could say to a, a, a church leader, for example, well, you know, you don't, you, you clearly don't know the full story, um, or you're not telling the full story, and the church leader could turn back on the disgruntled person and say, well, you, you know, you don't either, and you're not yeah. either. Yeah, that's, that's all I'm saying. And I'm not saying that you can ever demonstrate thoroughly which is the truth. You just always have to realize that this is a story that's being told. And uh, say, all right, that's your story, but I can tell it a different way. There are too many of these people. I met some in Berlin this summer, and they'd run onto this stuff. They had Grant Palmer's book, and they were just wiped out by it. They thought, ha, it's all over. And it reminded me of those that famous picture of the of the beautiful lady in the hag. You look at it for at one moment and it's a gorgeous woman with an ostrich feather hat. You look at it another moment and it's a horrible hag staring out at you. <coughs> Unfortunately, history is that way. It can take many forms. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for providing that sort of overview of uh, the animal that we call history. Let's let's jump in to the first um, issue, and that's uh, the first vision. And I'll I'll set you up so you can hit the ball out of the park, so to speak. 
you know, it, I didn't learn until well after I graduated from college that there was anything other than one version of the Joseph Smith story. That Joseph was, you know, that there was a lot of revivals when he was young. There was some confusion in his family about religion that he attended these revivals and didn't know which church to join. It's sort of the, the, the little Joseph Smith movie that we all grew up watching. And then when he's 14, a sincere boy goes to pray, uh, and he has a vision, and God the Father and Jesus appear to him as two distinct beings. Uh, I, should, I should mention that, that before the appearance that some evil spirit attacks him, uh, but he you know, sees God and Jesus, and they tell him that none of the churches are true, and that he's to start his own. So, you know, that's what I learned growing up. Uh, tell us how that doesn't necessarily paint a complete picture. Well, I think the, the heart of this problem has to do with the variations in these two major accounts, 1832 and 1838. Then there's some other uh, less complete accounts along the way. But what throws people for a loop uh, is exemplified by he says Lord as if it were a singular being in the 1830 account and the Father and the Son in the uh, 1838. Actually, there are many differences. That's just one in those two accounts. What What are some of the others? Just so, because well, for example, a lot of those... Go ahead. There's, there's no account of Satan overpowering him in the first account, the 1832 1832 emphasizes he went to seek forgiveness, and the first words that were told him is, you are forgiven. In 1838, forgiveness doesn't figure into it at all. And so it goes uh, down the line. And in the, in the 1832 version, it says, the Lord appeared to me, not God and Jesus appeared to me. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the one that usually jumps out at, at most moments. I find this problem perplexing in this way. For some people, this is a huge issue. He couldn't tell the story right. How could he vary on such a significant item as who actually appeared to him, and so on. Other people say, look, whenever we tell a story, uh, second time we always tell it differently, different uh, <coughs> different." Uh, details spring forth into our minds and so on. So they they just can't even get excited about the problem. So I don't know what to do about that. But there are two things uh, I have to say. One is the 1832 account really has a different purpose. It is a very naive account. The sentences run on to one another. They're all compressed. You know, the Spelling is poor. It's uh, sort of jumpy. It really is a, a naive story. It's sort of Joseph sort of unfolding what happened to him. The 1838 account really is laying down the foundation for the organization of the church, really saying this is how it all got started. And so the emphasis is very much on none of the churches are true therefore a new church has to be established. In the second, in the first account, there's not much emphasis on that. Uh, Joseph is told that people are wicked, but all sorts of millennialists knew the world was wicked. You didn't have a sense of this institutional corruption that 
everything in the religious world had, had decayed. So I see them as really uh, having quite <coughs> different purposes uh, from beginning to end. That's one thing I have to say. The second thing is, for me, it's a great mystery why Joseph is so reluctant to talk about his visions. I don't think he ever told Lucy or Joseph Sr. about the first vision. He explicitly says, when she asked him, he said, never mind, I'm well enough off. I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. And it's not until Peroni commands him that he tells the family about the visit of Moroni and the gold plates. And then he he doesn't put the visit of uh, John the Baptist uh, into the church history until 1838, doesn't make that part of the standard story, <coughs> and never writes down the visit of Peter, James, and John. In 1836, Revelation to the Kirtland Temple, he had Warren Parrish write it into his journal, but so far as can be told, he didn't tell anyone else about it in all of Kirtland. And I had no way uh, of explaining that. Uh, he, he's very concerned to publish immediately his written revelations, the ones that are coming by the Holy Spirit. He collects them, he edits them, he sends them off to the press, he says they're the foundation of the Church. But the visions, the visual presentations, uh, are just not part of that story, Section 76 being the, the one example, with the one exception. So the way I see it is that he's holding back on these visionary experiences. He never publishes that 1832 thing. I don't think we found it until the 1960s sometime. So I don't know what that means, but uh, <coughs> I'm not all that surprised that his, his, the detailed version of things varies when he's so reluctant to tell that whole story of the visions anyway. So it's almost like maybe he was humble about it or felt it was sacred and and didn't want to go about just really harping on it. I think so. I think he also was burned by that Methodist minister who told him it was all hogwash. And, you know, there is a visionary culture. <clears throat> if you read uh, certain chapters of my book, you'll know that there are a lot of people who claim to be receiving revelations. And I think he thought, they were kind of kooks. And, uh, you know, he's not really sympathetic to these extreme emotional expressions of spirituality. And I think he sort of felt like he, he didn't want to be associated with that visionary culture. But that's all speculation. I don't really know what's in his mind. So when, so is there any evidence that he told his family about the first vision prior to 1830? Um, I don't think so. There is, in the section 20, there's a very slight reference to in the fifth verse to the time when this elder was received a forgiveness of his sins, when he's sort of recounting the major experiences. So he's making oblique references, but uh, I don't think that that first vision story was really known by... <coughs> Uh, many people at all until the mid-30s and not really publicized till 
1840. And that's something that our listeners are probably going to be really stunned about because now you can't do the first missionary discussion without um, without the Joseph Smith story. But that's it sounds right. like many of the converts of the early church, the fact that Joseph had seen God and Jesus didn't even enter in to their conversion. I think it's almost certain it did not enter into their conversions until uh, later. It's not absolutely certain they would have known the name of Joseph Smith. He was not presented as the key figure in those first five or six years. The revelation was always in the passive voice. Revelation has been received, or God is speaking to his people. But as a personality or a significant figure, uh, there's no evidence they even talked about it. Parley Pratt writes the voice of warning in 1837. He never mentions Joseph Smith's name, and he doesn't even mention Revelation until something like page 122. So they were able to preach the gospel without doing much with uh, the stories that for now, for us now are the central part of the, of the history. So what was the call? If it wasn't Joseph Smith has seen God and has been told to start a new church, what, what was the call for people to convert to Mormonism? It was fundamentally the restoration of the spiritual gifts and the building of the city of Zion and a gathering in preparation for the second coming in a place of refuge. They would teach all sorts of other things, just simple gospel principles. They were sent forth, you know, to preach repentance to the people. They were not sent forth to teach Joseph Smith. 1832, Joseph Smith writes an article for a newspaper, which he tries to summarize their beliefs. doesn't say anything about himself as a, as a visionary, but talks about gathering in a city of Zion, preparation for the last days. So it's it's just basically have faith and preach nothing but faith, repentance, and baptism to these people. The kingdom of God is at hand. You, you know, you need to right. follow Christ and come do it in uh, Kirtland. Right, or, or Missouri. Or and the key thing is the restoration of gifts. We Revelations are now coming. Spiritual gifts are coming. It's Mark, what, 16-something or other. 16-16, I guess. Uh, and that was an issue that was on people's minds. People's mind. Everyone wants to go back to the primitive church, but they knew they didn't have the gifts of the primitive church. And Mormons say, we do have the gifts, we do have healings, and, and so on. Hmm. Okay. And so people, people like Grant Palmer like to paint this, the picture in this way. And even Von Brody, I think, did this. It's sort of like... Uh, the Smiths were poor in the 1820s. Joseph Smith was always concocting these schemes. He decided that he was going to write a book because maybe he could make money off the book. And so, however he wrote it, he wrote this book called the Book of Mormon. Um, originally, you know, with the 116 pages, it was going to be more of a kind of secular war history. But then when the pages got lost and he wasn't able to duplicate it, he decided to make it a religious one. And Von Brody, I remember her writing that that was sort of a real fortunate thing because that launched Joseph into the world of religion and church because he had to rewrite the book after the pages got lost. And so he writes the book, he sells it, uh, he tries to sell it, and then all of a sudden this church thing just sort of starts happening. And then um, it starts really snowballing because of his charisma and, and whatever teachings are in it. And then the way Grant Palmer tries to piece it together is by 1838, there's some huge 
because of the Kirtland Bank scandal, whatever, there's some huge apostasy. Martin Harris gets up and says, maybe we didn't ever touch or see the plates at all. And so he's trying to save the church from falling down. And so then he writes a, a version that's going to make it sound really authoritative, like God really called him to start the church. And so he, he then wrote the first vision story then, and that's what stuck with us. That's, that's a picture that's painted uh-huh. that, you know, that sometimes has teeth for people who are trying to make sense of all this stuff. Yeah. What would your response to that depiction be? Well, I think there are many um, sensible and reasonable people who uh, would take that very seriously. The, uh, we had a seminar, Grant Underwood and I ran a seminar on Joseph Smith for uh, college teachers, non-Mormon college teachers. And they were very attracted to Grant Palmer's view of things because it's the way uh, critics, historical critics of the Old and New Testament talk about the writing of things, that faith congeals over time. It doesn't just spring full-blown from anyone's mind. So I wouldn't say that it's uh, dead wrong. What I would say is that there's a huge amount of conjecture involved in that. You're, you're postulating a lot of things with very few points of evidence along the way. One of the things that Brony makes a lot of is that Joseph Smith was not religious, and she gets that from the Hurlbut affidavits, that they had no indication that Joseph was religious. But I'm not, I don't see how that could be. First of all, he lives in a religious culture. It's just saturated with evangelical religion. And as soon as he tells his story of, in 1832, and this is not long after, this is before the affidavits, man, he is involved in religion from the time he's 12 years old. This is a kid who has a, a private religious life. It's not evident, but he's really anguished about the state of his soul. <coughs> he's worried about the existence of God. He's had to go through all the theistic arguments. So I don't like any history that assumes there was no religion in, in Joseph Smith's life. And then, you know, to say, <laughs> I think I'll write a book, <laughs> I don't know, where does that come from? I'm going to write a book where it's translated from gold plates. And it's so far from anything that's in his immediate environment. What you did, if you were a young kid wanting to make a career in religion, you became a preacher. That's, that is the well-worn path. You go out and get a little congregation, and you preach to them, and then they begin to support you. And he does very little preaching, exhorts from the Methodists a little bit, but didn't win any followers as a preacher. So I would say, uh, you know, you really got to uh, do a lot of contortions to make that story work. Why, why was he doing anything for the Methodists if he had been told to start God's One True Church? Well, uh, why not do something for the Methodists? His wife's a Methodist, his brother-in-law's a Methodist trying to make peace in the family. He's, uh, he doesn't know when he goes to the Methodist in the first place, the Methodist minister, he doesn't know whether to believe his own eyes. It's, it's, can he believe that God has appeared to him? So he goes to the minister to try to figure out what's happened to him. And finally the minister, you know, who dismisses it, uh, persuades Joseph Smith that 
it wasn't true. He actually had seen seen things. So <clears throat> I don't think saying that it's his time to start a new church meant that he couldn't have anything to do with any other churches. He got very involved with the Masons when he got along. He welcomed all churches into Nauvoo, let them preach there, and so on. So that universalist background that maybe his father brought in yeah. was an important part of him. Well, now when I say universalist, I don't mean universalism, the denomination and doctrine. I mean universalism yeah. in the sense that God reaches out to all people as contrasted to particularistic. Through all faiths and creeds in some way. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and just one last question on this point. Some would just say, now look, let's just really strip it down. When you see God in Jesus, that makes an impression on your mind. And so you're going to at least say who was in the room when you were having the vision. And so the 1832 version, there's no room for him not just saying who was in the room or who was in the forest at the time of the vision. Would, do you have any response to that? Well, this is sort of what do you think, what do you think sort of thing. Yeah. Is it impossible for him to abbreviate his account by speaking to the Lord? Or, I mean, the God the Father just says one word to him, this is my beloved son, and then Christ does all the other speaking. So, you know, you might get excited about it, you might not. Right. Okay. So at the end of the day, you just have to accept it on faith. Either he was a liar or he was, you know, telling the truth. But but you're yeah. also but you're also saying that it, that it's reasonable. Uh, that, that it's not an open and shut case that there was deception or uh, uh, elaborate storytelling. That it, that a reasonable person could conclude right. that, that that the stories don't have to be inconsistent. See, I I go along this far with this line of thinking. That is, his purposes for writing the story did change as the years went by. And that affected the way he wrote the story. He's in a different position in 1838 than he is in 1832. He really is beginning to emerge as the founder of a church by 1838. There's been a lot of emphasis on loyalty to Joseph during those apostasy years. So his own self-conception is changing. And that's going to affect how he, how he writes that, that story. So he wasn't a strong uh, figurehead leader in the church from 1830 to 1838? Like, I'm trying to understand exactly what his role was then, if it wasn't as a strong figurehead. Well, I think he's a powerful figure. He's the one who speaks for God. And people almost immediately acknowledged he had that charismatic gift. Why they did that so fast, I don't know. But when he said, Thus saith the Lord, they believed it from those very early years. So I, I'm not minimizing that. But I think the, the authority was in the gift rather than in the man. It was like the Irvingites in Britain. They would hear about people who had gifts, and they would go search the kingdom to find these people, and then just sort of listen to their gifts. But they're not interested in them as persons. They're just they're just channels for the will of the Lord. And I think initially Joseph is kind of a channel, but as the years went by, you know, he becomes more powerful as a person, and he creates this whole structure where he's the president of the high priesthood. He has all these bureaucratic roles, not just his charismatic roles. 
and all that uh, made him a more prominent figure. So what this strikes at is the perception that sometimes seems to be encouraged today, which is that the church is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you know Adam and Eve were doing temple ceremonies just like we are now, that baptism is going on in the Old Testament times just like it is now, that everyone was not only plural mar- you know, married in the temple, but plural married, and that deacons were always 12 years old passing the sacrament with white bread. You know, there's sort of this mentality today that I feel like comes out of CES that, that everything ha- is and always was as it is. Yeah. And it sounds like the church and, the, and our perceptions of the structure and the hierarchy and all this rigidity of what some would call a corporate church today wasn't anything like the 1830 to 1838 experience. Well, uh, I think that is is true, uh, that we uh, do want to make the case that things have never been different. But the strange thing is that uh, within our own culture, we always leave room for radical change because of the principle of revelation. Things are always the same. You only need one revelation, and then that's it. You just conform to it. It's only because conditions change and all transformations need to be made that you need revelation at all. So I think we've always prided ourselves on adaptations. And I personally think the, the point of a prophet is how do you apply the principles of God enunciated in the Scripture in the conditions of our time. And that requires constant interpretation and reinterpretation. The chief criticism, or one of the chief criticisms of my book by the, uh, the kinds of people you've identified as critics, is that I see Joseph Smith as growing into his office as prophet. But I think he definitely grew into his office as prophet. He didn't know from age 14 on that he was the prophet of the Lord, and that was the end of it. I think he had to stumble around. He had to find his way. <clears throat> That's part of the wonder of his life. And so change being the only constant is something that we would all do well to sort of uh, absorb into our perspectives. Yeah. Uh, The word only, uh, I think, distorts it a little. It's sort of like the Constitution, which the courts are always revising. But it doesn't mean the Constitution changes or is insignificant that it's just putty in the hands of the judges. <clears throat> it's an anchor. And I think the scriptures serve the same way. They're an anchor and everything has to sort of grow out of them and be adjusted to the modern age. But part of the genius, it seems to me like part of the genius of both the Constitution and um, scriptures and even the Book of Mormon, and I learned this in my American Heritage class at BYU, is that there was enough broad not, I don't want to say vague, but enough general language to allow those documents to stretch, to conform to needed changes. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And sometimes the scriptures are minutely specific about going a mission to such and such a place. But usually they are just kind of a perspective on the world. Okay. So now let's turn to one of the hottest topics today uh at least on the you know on the internet r- with regarding mormonism and that's 
you know, treasure digging and folk magic. And if, if we can begin, uh, you know, let me just start. And that's that, you know, you grow up in the church thinking that Joseph Smith was this all-American boy. Uh, that, you know, yes, he talks about some mistakes that he made, but just like when President Hinckley stands up today and sort of um, does some self-deprecating humor, you, you know, you really dismiss it as saying, no, this guy is about as close to Jesus as anyone will ever meet. He's close to perfection. That's how Joseph Smith was. He was that way as a boy. He was that way as a man. So we dismiss the mistakes that he clearly may, uh, admits when he writes his own history. But then to extend that, um, you know, we're taught that Ouija boards are bad and evil, that even face cards are bad. And so we have this real disposition against anything that might be considered dark or black, etc. And then on top of that, you really don't, you, you may grow up hearing a little bit about seer stones, but you don't hear a lot about it. You're certainly never taught, here's what they meant by seer stones. And then, you know, the idea of, of treasure digging or water divining or, you know, however it's, that seems to be about as far as your perceptions of Joseph Smith as you could ever have. And then just to sort of cap this off, we're taught about Joseph Smith being brought into court at various times in his life, but we're never really told why he was brought into court. And, and we're taught about people who talked bad about Joseph Smith and his family, but we're never really taught, um, you know, what were some of the things that they were doing that might have caused uh, a, a, bad, a bad reputation? And then just to sort of round it all out, when it comes to the Book of Mormon, uh, and we'll, we'll actually cover the Book of Mormon later, but we're, you know, we're taught that, th that what he used to translate was this formal Urim and Thummim type thing that scholars of old, you know, prophets of Old Testament would have worn with a bread plate and, and some glasses, and, and then he's doing this translation. But you find out that this peepstone that he used, that we'll talk about, arches and makes its way all the way into his his you know his revealing of the Book of Mormon. So, so this is the perception that one grows up with, and one just becomes completely shocked to learn about when he said he had weaknesses, what he meant, and, and what was the cause of a lot of this persecution and bad reputation, etc. So lay out for us what we should know about um, this issue. Well, <coughs> contrary to some of the things I was saying earlier, I think this is a case where the facts are the facts. He was put on trial for uh, glass looking. He did have a seer stone. He did put it in his hat to translate the Book of Mormon. Uh, he put great value on that seer stone, and that's uh, just the way it was. How, how did it begin? Like, what do you have a sense for when these expeditions started happening? Who was involved? What they would do? Um, it's it's a little hard. There is this debate about when Joseph Senior, who is sort of the chief figure in all the treasure seeking when he began this practice. Uh, some people have said he did it in Vermont, which is altogether possible, but the evidence is weak. The, I think the chief uh, starting point is 1822, when Joseph Smith, uh, digging a well with Willard Chase, came across this stone that he believed had seer stone properties and persuades Willard Chase to give it to him. And then he uses that all his life. 
How would it have occurred to him that a stone could have special properties? Was that was that just because you know people were having seer stones at the time, or folk folk magic and, and treasure digging was going on just generally within New England at that time period? I think you've got it right there. It's part of their culture. Willard Chase wanted the stone back so he could use it as a seer stone. His sister Sally Chase used the seer stone to try to find the the Book of Mormon plates. It was it was not a totally respectable culture, but it was, you know, a strong undercurrent in uh, Yankee culture all through that, that period. And what would be a typical expedition for in Yankee culture for the time period? What would people do? Well, I don't know. The Hurlbut affidavits give uh, various descriptions of magic rites, trying to find the treasure and then trying to get the treasure because it keeps receding out of sight. The trouble is, those accounts, you never know how much to trust them. Are they just jazzing them up to make it more dramatic, or is that how it how it really worked? But there was a sense that there might be guardian guardians over these treasures who would try to prevent people from uh, finding them or taking them away. So the angel Moroni fits into that pattern pretty well. So... So, <coughs> totally disconnected from Joseph Smith, in New England in the early 1800s, people believed that there were buried treasures throughout the forests or mountains of, of America. They would, they would go on expeditions to try and find them. Right. Sometimes they would use a stone, some type of device to help with the vision, visionary things. They would see things, they, they would get together and maybe even feel like they were experiencing something unified and seeing some type of treasure in the ground, that maybe there was a guardian there, and and they would usually never find the treasure? Right. Now, how could that be fun to go on an expedition to never find something? It's <laughs> a good question. I don't know, but they just perpetually win. I don't know of a single account of anyone actually turning up something that was of any, any value. But, uh, so were they just bored or really superstitious? Well, superstitious is a pejorative word. Uh, these are people, they're good Christians, who believe in the powers of the supernatural. If you go back to Puritanism, there's a lot of this kind of magic running through New England Puritanism. In the 17th century, it runs through Christianity at all levels, including educated people. So it's a very powerful and prevalent culture, magic. And Joseph Smith is sort of out on the edges of that and <coughs> picks it up. <coughs> we, of course, are uh, are offended by it. If he did things that were in the Bible or came out of Protestantism, then we would say, well, that's okay. That is our definition of what are legitimate sources for revelation and guidance. We would never say something coming out of masonry or out of magic could be the starting point for a revelation. But I think that's a comment on our own parochialism as much as it is on uh, Joseph Smith's situation. You know, there are a lot of church scholars who did love among them who love alchemy because it was an, an effort to raise the soul to a higher level. level. You're not just trying to turn base metals into precious metals, you're trying to turn a base self into a precious self. And so uh, I, 
I don't, maybe it's just because I've got accustomed to it, but I'm perfectly willing to say that that could be part of Joseph Smith's preparation for what otherwise was a totally fantastic thing, looking in the stone to translate a record. No precedence for that in his immediate environment. But looking in the stone to find lost objects <coughs> was one way that <coughs> he could have got ready for it. So in other words, um, in other words, God knew that through through spiritual or uh, inspired mechanical, me you know, some, somehow mechanical means, he was going to need to produce, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon and other revelations. Yeah. But that, but the people didn't just do that out of their head. They did it through some type of process that involved the physical body. And so, by ha allowing Joseph Smith to be exposed to a type of magic-based or spiritual-based process or ritual pre prepared him for being able to then produce uh, an inspired work later. Yeah, I think so. I think the same thing happens with masonry and the Nauvoo period. We think that the translation of the Bible was the great source of his questions. And it was a very valuable source, but he got... Uh, he got inspired from all sorts of things in his environment to think of, to ask questions and to get revelations. It's a fair question how much of that is how revelation works, period. We like to think that revelation happens, even with prophets, by God by God saying, pull out your pencil, you know, here's what you're going to dictate, or here's the revelation. And, you know, anyone who knows about Spencer B. Kimball or David O. McKay's attempts to try and uh, you know, come up with the 1978 revelation, uh, we'll know that it was much more nuanced and complicated than that and involved real experience and conversations and thoughts and experiences that led to what we would then call a revelation. It was not, pull out your pen, this is God, it's time to dictate, uh, you know, the 1978 revelation. Well, I think that is our view of revelation, that it comes through the mind of a prophet in his language, which means in his culture. And so you've got to have enough in that culture to uh, to make it uh, conceivable only to him. I'm a patriarch, and I believe that I'm able to give blessings to people that come out of my temperament, my experience. Another patriarch with a different set of experiences could probably give another kind of, of blessing to them. There's just one way of doing things. It all is coming through the person who speaks God and has the imprint of that person's uh, background on what is said. So in other words, you can't reveal with words you don't have, and you can't, you can't grapple with experiences you haven't dealt with right. In, right. Your, in your life. <coughs> I'd say so. I, I'm not saying, you know, you can't broaden your views a lot that you're really restricted because the revelations were some pretty remarkable things. I think the Book of Mormon is a fabulous story. And despite what all the critics say, I still don't see you get that whole book out of Joseph Smith's immediate environment. So you can get beyond to a certain extent, but you're still tethered to your own culture. Right. So real quick, um, so Joseph started doing these expeditions uh, regularly? Well, it's hard to tell. Um, 
he gets the Sears stone in 1822, and it sounds like the Herbert affidavits are talking about uh, thereafter, in the next few years. Then in 1826, there's this trial where Joseph Sr. says in a very dramatic and powerful statement that we have used this boy's gifts for base purposes, seeking wealth rather than the higher purposes of God. So I think that's, that's sort of the, the high point of Smith family money digging. And then it's going to run downhill. Now, <clears throat> Dan Vogel comes up with all sorts of examples of, of money digging after that time, and I would not deny that they might, it might have happened, because you don't cut things off immediately, usually. But it's much thinner evidence. It's not nearly as persuasive. And so I think there was a sort of a four-year period and then it tapered off pretty gradually. Pretty and, and I think I remember from your from your uh, <coughs> beginnings of early Mormonism book that it may have even been that Joseph at times wanted to stop, but his dad sometimes pressured him to keep going? Well, yeah. I do think that. that his father was the enthusiast, not, not Joseph. He was pressing him into his service, and there's little pieces of evidence to show that. Not that Joseph thought it was all wrong. You know, the Lord never repudiated money digging as an art. He repudiated doing these things for wealth. And the, it was the greed of the money diggers that he was to get away from. And so, you know, when he goes off to Salem, when was that, 37, I think, fall of 37, uh, or 36, uh, he's thinking he's going to find treasure in the basement of a, of a house. So it kept sort of reasserting itself over the years, but <clears throat> it's on a minor, it's a minor key, minor theme after that, after 1826. After 1826. Now, yeah. now that, that, um, that's <clears throat> interesting because one of the things that, you know, one of the basic questions to ask, I think, in just understanding the narrative is how did Joseph meet Emma? And, and tell me how much of the story I have right, that, that there's a man named Josiah Stoll, who who heard that Joseph had some special powers or gifts? He he had reason to believe that there was a treasure mine, a silver mine in Pennsylvania, and so he said, "Joseph, come with me. I need you to help me find this treasure mine." And while Joseph and Josiah Stoll were in Pennsylvania, um, somehow they connected with the Hale family, and I don't even know if they took took board with the Hales, but that's how Joseph met Emma Hale. Yep. And and as I recall reading Von Brody's book, it sounds like Joseph even took Isaac Hale with them as they went to find the silver mine, and Joseph leads them to the place of the silver mine and then says, oh, I'm sorry, it's too far down, we can't get it. And that was what made Isaac Hale say, this guy's a kook, he's a fraud. And that's why he wouldn't let Joseph marry Emma, and that's why Joseph and Emma had to elope. Yeah, is that am I fair, or did I miss something there, or is that true? Well, uh, it's always a question of the uh, reliability of the evidence. It is true that he boarded with the Smiths, with the Hales, got to know Emma, uh, and that Isaac was sort of involved in this. He's, his name appears on some of the documents those miners were working on, so he's involved. <laughs> then he does become disillusioned. Whether or not it was from this experience at the treasure mine, 
you know, that's the part that isn't really well worked out or the evidence isn't all that good. It's, it's possible, but uh, I'm not so sure of it. But it is a fact that Isaac Heal was very critical Joseph Smith after that time. And this is this is post-1826, right? So, I mean, this is the residue that you talk about. He's still doing it some, right? Uh, no, no. No, this is not post-1826. The trial occurs after this incident. Oh. In a, see, they, they're digging in, what, November of 1825. In Pennsylvania. Trial, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. The trial is, I think, the spring of 1826, because he goes back down to work for Josiah Stoll and Josiah Stoll's nephew or something like that brings this suit against Joseph. So it's after that fact. And and some have tried to claim that he brought him along to dig as in with a shovel. And you would say that's not likely his main purpose in going, right? To bring Isaac Hale along? No, no, no. That that, that Josiah Stoll brought Joe. Some have tried to discredit this trip to Pennsylvania as Josiah Stoll bringing Joseph along to dig with his shovel. He needed hands to dig holes. Well, I think he did that, but he doesn't bring Joseph down from Palmyra for that reason. It's because he's got this gift. That's that's what he's interested in. And I bet you would say that if the critics are going to you know, disparage Joseph Smith, they're going to have to answer the question as to why his father and other members of the community continued to believe that he had a power. Is that true? Because even Josiah Stoll, after the trial, maintained that Joseph Smith had power, even though he wasn't able to find treasure. Is that right? Yeah, Josiah Stoll, at the trial, testified that he believed Joseph Smith you know, had a real gift. So, And Josiah Stoll joins the church and, and so on. So his uh, faith in Joseph never, never wavers. This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archives of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today or by voting for this episode at dig.com and sustained.org. Thanks again for listening.